0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
3: In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom... How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more. (laughs)
0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Between 1912 and 1923, nearly 300 of Ireland's grandest country houses were targeted by arsonists and reduced to ash and rubble. But why? As Professor Terence Dooley reveals in his book, Burning the Big House, these stately homes have become embroiled in complex disputes over land and imperialism, caught up in the violence of revolution and civil war. I spoke to Terry to find out more. And just to let you know, we had some issues with Terry's end of the recording, so apologies if the sound quality of this episode isn't up to our usual standard. You've been looking at the burning of stately homes in Ireland's revolutionary period in the early 20th century. Just to start us off, how many stately homes are we talking about here? How many big houses were burned in the early 20th century in Ireland?
4: But during the, what's known as the Revolutionary Period in, in, in Ireland, Ellie, there were approximately 300 big houses, and that's a term that's rather unique to Ireland, country houses, uh, born between 1920 and 1923. And this is the period of the War of Independence from 1920 to 21, followed by the Civil War from 1922 to 1923. Now, the revolutionary period can be divided up into the War of Independence, 1920 to 21, and the Civil War, 1922 to 23. And in 1921 to 22, houses are burned for various reasons. First of all, because there are rumours that they're going to be commandeered by the British forces, or in fact they are commandeered by the British forces, and used as temporary barracks. So the IRA see them as legitimate targets to be the stride to prevent this happening. Uh, Secondly, because they are... The uh, physical symbols of colonialism um, on on the on the landscape, and their owners are supporters of the British establishment. And houses are are, are sometimes burned because uh, their owners are suspected of colluding with um, the, the the British army or the British forces, or because they are used as counter reprisals um, and burned in retribution, for example, for the burning of towns and villages and farmhouses and so on by the crown forces, the black and tans and the auxiliaries. During the Civil War, considerably more houses are burned than were burned during the War of Independence, uh, partly because of the breakdown in law and order, partly because of an escalation in agrarianism. Also, Uh, House are burned in the Civil War because they have been taken over by the anti-Treatyites and they're burned then as they evacuate them. Now, there's no discernible military logic to this anti-Treatyite strategy, but there's an argument to be made that Civil War conditions continue to provide further opportunity for Republicans to rid the countryside of the physical reminders of the colonizer. Finally, Houses are burned by anti-Treatites in reprisal for the execution of their comrades, and these houses, uh, many of them are, many of them belong to the old landed class or the aristocracy who have become senators in the new free state government. So they become again targets as as reprisals.
0: And what's the historical background of all of this that we need to understand in order to make sense of these burnings?
4: Well, first of all, I mean, context is is very important. And the title of the book is Burning the Big House, the story of the country house in war and revolution. Now, war is fairly straightforward. I mean, it refers to the First World War, 1914 to 18, which, of course, is regarded as a major major watershed in the history of aristocracies across Europe. Uh, Revolution requires a little more unpacking here. As early as 1881, I mean, Lord Dufferin, who was one of the leading aristocrats in the north of Ireland, wrote to a friend of his, and he said that Irish landlords had become the victims of a revolution. Now, what effectively he was talking about was the dramatic impact that global agricultural recession from the late 1870s, uh, which in Ireland led to the establishment of a mass movement, the Land League or the Irish National Land League, in response to landlordism, took root in 1879. And it drew its leadership from rural alliance of large farmers who were predominantly Roman Catholic, while their landlords were predominantly Protestant. And these farmers were backed up by their clergy and their townsmen. And at first, their initial aim was to uh, try to protect tenants from the consequences of agricultural depression by ensuring that rent levels remained affordable. But what ensued was a land war from 1879 to eighty one, which was the first phase, but actually which dragged on for considerably longer
0: and what do you mean by a land war?
4: First of all, tenants demanded through the Irish National Land League a reduction in rent from their landlords. Some landlords would have granted the abatements or the reductions. Others procrastinated. Others downright refused to do so. So tenants went on strike. Landlords then subsequently evicted their tenants. Uh, rural Ireland became particularly violent. In, in In the period 1879 to 81, you have thousands of agrarian related crimes being committed including 17 murders per year and you know this was unprecedented in living memory and ultimately the British government stepped in to try to sort this problem out by introducing a Land Act in 1881. The Act set up the Irish Land Commission which in turn set up courts to adjudicate on fair rents. And in a politically volatile climate like we had between 1879 and 81, fair rents invariably came to mean lower rents. So you had landlords who even before this were heavily indebted. They now found their rents being reduced by about 20 to 21 percent they therefore found themselves in a situation by the end of the 19th century that they were so heavily indebted that they wanted to rid themselves of their land estates if the proper mechanisms were put in place so that's one aspect of it but the other aspect of it was that simultaneously from the 1880s, you had the rise of the nationalist home rule movement in Ireland that was demanding Irish independence. The rise of the home rule movement severely compromised the landed class's class is sphere of political influence, with the result that you had a political revolution of some magnitude between the 1880s and the turn of the century. And landlords were ousted from political power at both national level And at local government level, uh, particularly after the passing of the local government there act in 1898, you had a social revolution on one hand, and you had a political revolution on the other hand. Mm. So landlords were in a, or the aristocracy were in a particularly vulnerable position in that respect at the outbreak of the Great War in 1914.
0: So when we do get to the outbreak of, of the war, you say that landlords were vulnerable, but how would they have been viewed by local communities?
4: See that that's a very interesting question, right? And it's one that again requires a great deal of unpacking, because during the land war era itself, I mean, landlords were excoriated from public platforms, um, uh, and 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 by extension, then uh, their big houses were represented as the symbols of colonial uh, decadence and opulence practiced amidst uh, economic deprivation and so on. But the other side of it is that, I mean, in many communities, we have to try to, to unearth and understand more clearly the significance, the economic significance of the big house in those communities. I mean, how many landlords actually left Ireland, closed up their houses after the passing of the 1903 Land Act? But nobody has mapped this to date. Um, But the anecdotal evidence, when you look at travellers' reports and memoirs and so on, people passing through various different counties, from Mayo to to, to County Monaghan, they're talking about houses that have been abandoned and houses that are now derelict and so on. And in 1906 the government produced um, a return of untended lands in Ireland that marked out mansions on these lands as well. And it's it's, uh, mapped about 1,600, I think, mansions in existence in Ireland at that time. Now, that suggests that an awful lot of houses had, in fact, been abandoned uh, or that they were emptied because... In the 19th century, there were probably around three and a half thousand or four thousand of these houses. But suffice to say, still, in very many parishes, towns, villages uh, in Ireland, places like Manute or Abbey Leaks, Westport, Rockhari, Strokestone, Burr and so on, the bonds between the aristocratic families and the wider local community were far from sundered or dissolved by uh, the land war or the breakup of the estates because a resident aristocracy continued to be important to the local community and after they had sold their estates they had money to invest now they didn't they didn't invest in ireland which was rather unfortunate but they did become progressive farmers many of them they became supporters of the cooperative movement they developed new income streams on their domains so they provided in other words extensive local employment And again, I think you begin to see the evidence of the importance of that during the revolutionary period, when in fact so many houses are not burned and local communities are making representation to uh, the new government to see if something can be done to protect what is essentially their their livelihoods.
0: So it's a very complex picture. So how do we move from this antagonism between aristocracy and the local community, but also a kind of interdependency into a period where big houses are actively targeted and burnt.
4: That return of 1906 showed that the lander elite still retained about 2.6 million acres of domain and untended lands. Now, they were therefore holding this land at the expense of land-hungry smallholders. So you're looking at an economy that is very much based on, 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 on agriculture, right? And access to land is paramount. Uh, for people, not just as a means of obviously making a living, but also as a means of, 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 of acquiring uh, social status. So uh, again, the point I suppose I want to make here is that despite the success of the Land Acts, there remains uh, a very real and very vibrant land question in Ireland. And that comes to the fore once again during uh, the Great War. About 1917 or so, with the growth of uh, Republican Sinn Féin, they begin to exploit the land question once again in the same way that constitutional politicians had done so in the 1880s. They began to call for the breakup of these uh, untended estates um, and they begin to effectively promise young men who join in the revolutionary movement that when the revolution is over there will be this uh, this acquisition and redistribution of lands so for that reason you know agrarian agrarianism uh, or the social dimension of the revolution becomes much more important than might have been accepted up to now
0: still to come on the history extra podcast
4: and then a few passed into private ownership. And that particularly becomes the case in the, in the in, in more latter years when uh, the New Wealth of Ireland buy up many of these historic houses and, and uh, restore them um, uh, in, in some degree of, of, of splendor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate?
2: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot History Extra.
3: In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more.
0: I guess that every single case that we're talking about here perhaps had different motivations and uh, different contributing factors involved. I wonder if you might be able to give us a case study that might kind of illuminate this for us a bit.
4: I think it's very important to state at the outset that any one house could be burned for a variety of different reasons. Some buried in the historical past, some in the events of 1917 to 23, or some for a mix of both, right? Uh, At the most fundamental level, the War of Independence in Ireland is a guerrilla war and it's characterised by reprisals and counter-reprisals. So when, for example, the Black and Tans or the Auxiliaries, the Crown Forces in Ireland, when they burn villages and towns such as Balbriggan or Trim or Cork, their retaliation in the form of of burning country houses or dismantling symbols of imperialism in Ireland is, it, it, it is inevitable. Now, of course, Ireland in the 1920s is no different to, let's say, New York in, in, in the 1770s, where in both cases, you know, this, this this lust for revenge or recrimination is is enough to unleash uh, an orgy of of arson. Let's say we take the case of Mydrum Castle in County Westmead, June 1921. Colonel Thomas Lambert, who was the commanding officer of the 13th Brigade in Atlone, was killed in an IRA ambush uh, near a, a village called Glasson. And in retaliation that night, four lorry loads of black and tans they went on a rampage of revenge in Knock Crockery Village, which just was just across the county border in Roscommon. And they burned 15 houses. They followed up by burning five farmhouses at Cousin. So now, it's counter reprisal time, so to speak, and at around 3 a.m. on the morning of the 3rd of July, the IRA, the local IRA, arrived at mydrum uh, Castle, and IRA veterans later claimed that it was chosen because of Lord Castlemaine's past actions as landlord and the fact that he was a unionist and a staunch uh, loyalist. The IRA leader, Thomas Costello, informed Lady Castlemaine on the night that the house was being burned as a counter-reprisal for what had happened in Cousin and, and the Crockery, um in the nights uh, before that. So, I mean, that would seem to be the most obvious reason. But then we have got to ask ourselves the question, I mean, were there also ulterior motives uh, possibly linked, for example, to local agrarian agitation? And... What the IRA leader Thomas Costello didn't mention in his Bureau of Military History witness statement was that he and two of his brothers had been actively involved in agrarian agitation in the lead up to the burning. And the burning itself was not the end of the intimidation of Lord Castlemaine and his family. And historian Eugene Dunn has concluded that this was all part of, of an orchestrated campaign of intimidation to force Castlemaine to leave the atlone area for good. And by that time, Castle, in fact, the IRA leader, had been, had been one of those who had managed to get his hands on uh, some of the domain lands, though it's possible that it seems that he was later rousted by the free state government. But in 1924, Lord Castlemaine sells his domain and whatever untended lands he had left to the Irish Land Commission, which is then divided up amongst the small uneconomic holders in the locality. So what was quite obviously... Um, a case of a house being burned as a counter reprisal by the IRA also has this complex backdrop to it that those who were involved were also, you know, agrarian agitators um, and, and and people who uh, looked towards the redistribution of these lands that landlords had continued to hold on to.
0: And I think that moidrum is a really interesting case because, as you mentioned there, the lady of the house, Lady Castlemaine, she was warned that her house was going to be burnt and allowed to take a few objects from it, if I'm correct. I'm, I'm interested in how these burnings were carried out because they weren't intended to lead to loss of life, generally, were they?
4: No, I mean, I think if anything, what 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 marks out uh, the uh, Irish revolutionaries' attitudes towards the aristocracy is the fact that they, they, they practice such restraint. I mean, especially in in comparison to the revolutionary experience of aristocrats across Europe, uh, from the Russian Revolution in 1917 right up to the to Romanian experience in the ni- in the 1980s. So there are Certainly cases of families who were physically intimidated and physically assaulted, but they're relatively mild in comparison. And generally speaking, what the owners tend to talk about afterwards is that uh, the IRA had behave rather courteously towards them. I mean, the Earl of Mayo, after his house at Palmerston was born, he said that the raiders had behaved courteously and they had granted him time to remove some of his more valuable paintings. Sir John Dillon of Lismullen and Mead, he referred to the raiders as courteous arsonists and again he said that they'd helped him to remove some of his pictures and plate. lady louisa bagwell of marfield said that the raiders offered no personal violence and again allowed family remove personal belongings and come back to your question with regard to lady castlemaine she, I think she was told originally that they had about 15 minutes to clear out whatever they could, and she pleaded for more time to remove uh, valuables, and she wasn't only really granted this, um, but the IRA leader also uh, allegedly um, allocated 10 men to help her. He later claimed to have heard that 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 Lady Castlemaine informed the military that the men who burned the castle were gentlemen and that they behaved as such. So some time, in other words, is given for these families to remove some of their valuables and their contents. Of course, in the in the in the scurry then, which which ensues, it's very difficult for them to decide what's going to be saved and what's not going to be saved. And actually, what you end up with is yeah, probably what might be described as bric-a-brac on the front lawn at dawn when everything becomes um, clear as to what what has been saved and what hasn't.
0: It must have been quite an extraordinary scene, an extraordinary thing to witness, these spectacular houses being burned, like you say, with all the bric-a-brac on the lawn and the family watching.
4: Yes, Um, and I mean the attacks themselves were were hardly sporadic, I mean there had to be some planning involved. In the case of my drum, the raiders knew for example that Lord Castlemaine wasn't going to be present on the night because of inside information from the main workers who were related to the local IRA. So when they arrive, when the gang of uh, men arrive, they have with them uh, gallons of, of paraffin oil, uh, they have sledges with them in case they need to break in the front door or, for that matter, gain access any, anywhere else. When they do get in, um, they tell Lady Castlemaine why they're there. The uh, raiders then will have gone from room to room, piling the furniture into the center of the rooms, dousing it then in paraffin. They broke the windows, they took slates off the roof in order to fan the flames. So what you had then was usually a raging inferno within minutes. Now, the estate firefighting equipment was useless. um, And anything else that was better was too far away to make it there in time to be, again, of of any use.
0: If, If we were to think about this from purely an architectural or an art history perspective, what would some of the greatest losses in this period be?
4: Uh, probably uh, one of the, the the most outstanding losses would be Summerhill in County in County Mead. Now, this was um, probably one of the largest houses built in Ireland. It was about 300 feet long, I think. Definitely one of Ireland's grandest houses, built in the early 1730s in the manner of the Renaissance palaces in, in, in Rome, which was a treatment that was very unusual in Ireland. And that was burned on the 4th of February 1921 because a rumour went around that the Crown forces were going to occupy it, commandeer it and occupy it as a barracks. And the local IRA decided that that couldn't happen. It commanded a very strategic position located on a ground uh, commanding one of, the, one of the routes to the west. So that definitely, um, a house that was described as having been reduced to a mass of blacking ruins, would have been a significant loss. So would Mitchelstown Castle in Cork, which was burned during the Civil War by anti-treatyites who had occupied it and as they were leaving decided to actually um, uh, destroy it. And again, this would have been the largest neo-Gothic castle in in the country, then within the houses themselves, I mean, mean, this again is is, is something that requires a great deal more attention. Because first of all, it should be said that many of the houses had been emptied of their contents before they were burned, because uh, owners uh, suspected or feared what was going to actually happen. But there's no question that as well as that, you know, Valuable works of art were destroyed, great collections of, of silver were destroyed, uh, great collections of, of, of Irish furniture were destroyed, um, not to mention, of course, the magnificent uh, interior embellishments, the to, to, to stucco work and, 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 every, and everything else. So we'll never truly, I, I believe, know what exactly was lost. And part of the reason for that, of course, is the owners kept very poor inventories,
0: you mentioned earlier that after Moydrum Castle was burned, the castle mains essentially shut up shop not long after and left Ireland. Was that quite a common thing for the owners of these burned and ruined properties or did many people attempt to rebuild um, their houses or stay in Ireland?
4: Yes, uh, I mean, again, it's it's a mix of both. Um, but uh, I, I think it's safe to say that the majority of them did not come back um, to Ireland and, and rebuild their houses. Now, part of the reason for that is the compensation that was available to them. So first of all, owners were unable to claim on their insurance policies because they were not covered against riot and civil commotion. Secondly, The level of compensation that was paid to them, as opposed to the original claims made, um, there there was no comparison. I mean, they probably received, roughly speaking, 20 to 25 percent in compensation on what they claimed and and that's particularly true in the case of the houses that were burned during the war of independence because both governments you know realizing the extent of the claims that were going to be submitted so remember it's not just big houses I mean you know you know towns villages farmhouses you have injuries to people injuries to cattle I mean you've tens of thousands of applications for uh, compensation so they're never going to get as much as would allow them obviously to rebuild the house either in its original grandeur or of course then thereafter then to to um to furnish it and and so on so a lot of them therefore didn't rebuild now in relation to compensation that was paid under the Free State Compensation Act or the Property Compensation Act passed in 1923, there was a stipulation that compensation would be payable only upon the fulfillment of certain conditions that the court might impose. And these were either, the court might impose that the house would be wholly built on the original site, or it would be partially reinstated, right? So you do have uh, owners such as Sir Thomas Esmond at Ballynastra, you have Lord Donnelly at uh, Kilby, and they rebuild their houses uh, based on the compensation that they, that they receive. But you have quite a few also who take the other option and they take reduced compensation, but they rebuild elsewhere. So Cork County Council, for example, demanded that the compensation that was to be paid to Lady Ardalon for the Burningham of McCroom Castle had to be expended on the erection of dwelling houses suitable to the requirement of the people of the, uh, the local town. Charles Warden of Derry Quinn in Kerry he sold his compensation decree to Dublin County Council, which you could do, uh, for them to build 26 houses on Griffith Avenue. And J.M. Wilson from Curry gran in Longford, he claimed $59,000 for the burning of Curry gran but he was awarded only $12,000. So instead, what he did was he built several villas in uh, in, in Dunleary. So in, in a sense... You therefore have, you know, the changing of the Irish physical landscape. In 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 one place, the disappearance of the country house, the disappearance of the domain and the design landscape, and then you have the building of houses in in in, in for example, the Dublin suburbs. Right, so you have uh, urban growth that results from the compensation played to country house owners.
0: And what's the position of Ireland's country houses today? Do a lot of these ruins remain?
4: Yes. I mean, the country is dotted with 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 with, with hundreds of, of, of ruins of country houses. But the point uh, that that's, that's really important is that while 300 houses or so are burned during the revolutionary period, 1920 to 23, and that's not nearly as detrimental as the fallout from the uh, economic crisis of the 20s and the 30s so that as a result of economic decline as a result of rising tax rates as a result of rising local government rates in in, in Ireland, and to an extent, political apathy towards these houses and their survival. I mean, hundreds upon hundreds more uh, disappear from the 1920s through to, um, well, through to the present day, you you, you could say. You also have houses that um, survived initially in the 1920s, but because of the passing of a Land Act by the Free State Government in 1923 and afterwards, the government was given the power to compulsorily acquire domain and untented lands for the relief of local congestion. In other words, to build up small, uneconomic, and unviable farms. So they were stripped of whatever land that they had left. And without these land banks, the, the big houses themselves became totally unviable. And they passed over to the Irish uh, Land Commission. And that state body, when it took them over, it had no deliberate policy to demolish them. But because they could do nothing else with them, they couldn't sell them. There was no market for them. They had no option. And again, you know, dozens if not more of houses are demolished by the Land Commission. And the salvage is used then for the building of local roads, sometimes for the building of power stations, sometimes for the building of agricultural laborers' cottages. There are other houses then that... They assume new new functions, right? They became schools, they became convents, they became monasteries, they became hotels and golf clubs and so on. And then a few passed into private ownership, and that particularly becomes the case in the in the in in more latter years, when uh, the new wealth of Ireland buy up many of these historic houses and and uh, restore them um, uh, in in some degree of, of, of splendour.
0: That was Terence Dooley. He's the author of Burning the Big House, the story of the Irish country house in a time of war and revolution. That's out now, published by Yale. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.